I'm Josh Hamilton. And I'm Joe Skinner. And this is the American Masters Podcast, where we have conversations with the people who change us. Today, we talk to multi-hyphenate writer, director, actress, and artist, Miranda July. I'm so interested in the way that people both yearn for connection and very much get in their own way. That's a form of creativity. That's an expression of self is how you kind of fail to connect. And so I think people feel the, the yearning and maybe less obvious is like all the interesting mistakes. Miranda July made her first big splash at Sundance in 2005 by writing, directing, and acting in her debut feature film, Me and You and Everyone We Know. She won the camera door at Cannes in 2006 with the film and went on to author a collection of short stories, a nonfiction story collection, and in 2015 released her debut novel, The First Bad Man. July is first and foremost an artist and is never confined to one medium over another. Joe recently had a chance to interview her. I was really grateful that she allowed us to come over really early in the morning for this conversation. It's the first time that we've been able to interview somebody in their home for the podcast. We didn't get a chance to talk about it, but one of my favorite projects of hers is her second film, The Future, which marries magical realism elements with an achingly honest and intimate relationship drama. I highly recommend it. I think Miranda's work is always ahead of its time and really has foretold many of the important conversations in the zeitgeist today, especially issues around mass communication and around the politics of building creative spaces for women through their art. Right, because in the 90s, Miranda was involved in the feminist punk movement Riot Girl, and that's where she started her first major video project, Joni for Jackie, which is where Joe's conversation begins. I dropped out of college, moved to Portland, was in a very kind of intense Riot Girl DIY punk music world, and I really wanted to make movies. I was performing and in bands, but I, I wanted to do film and had not yet made a movie when I started this kind of underground distribution network that was really just the idea that if you sent me your short movie um, as a woman, then I would send you back a tape with your movie and nine other movies on it, so made by other women. And yeah, it was just a very simple pre-YouTube idea of how we might see each other's work so that we could um, feel like there was a context for what we were doing and, and also a reason to make work that wasn't, um, since I was outside any institution, um, or any kind of support or context for why you might make a movie, I thought, well, you also kind of want a reason to make one, you know, that's not a class, that's not a contest. Um, and so, yeah, that was called Joni for Jackie. And eventually I did make my first movie and I put it on one of those tapes. It was the thing that kind of propelled me into action. I mean, it served that purpose. It, it tried to be like a revolution and change everything, but at very least it, it changed my life. Yeah. It feels like a premonition of the internet almost, that, that project. Right. Along with me and you and everyone we know, which I rewatched last night for the first time since it came out too. Right. Um, and just the context of that film in 2005 versus now, it feels like a very different landscape on the internet at least. Yeah. I know I... Yeah, I'm always interested in systems, like how things can actually work. Like what I loved 
about Joni for Jackie, one of the things was just the post office, just that there was already this mechanism set up that we could use for our own, you know, very personal means. Um, obviously, other artists had come across that idea over the years. Um, but I think I, I approach each technology, like, you know, each next technology, kind of like that too. Like, oh, what could be done with this? You know, that's not um, maybe intended, but what could, what could a person like me get out of this? I feel like there's always communication and how we talk to each other and how we relate to each other in your work. After that movie came out, I remember people talking a lot about that, about how interested in connection I was. I thought, well, that sounds nice, but am I? <laughs> Certainly looking around at my life, I don't seem that interested in the way, the way I live. And then I thought, well, I think what it is is I'm so interested in the way that people both yearn for connection and very much get in their own way and that we each, we each kind of sabotage ourselves uniquely and that that's, that's a form of creativity. That's like a, an expression of self is how you kind of fail to connect. Um, and so I think people feel the, the yearning and maybe less obvious is like all the interesting mistakes, you know, that, that to me are kind of what excites me. Do you think people fail or succeed at communication more today than they did in 2005 even? Gosh, I mean, I don't think we've changed, although I think that that's yet to be discovered with young people who've only ever been on the phone. Um, I do think the confusion about what is real, like what is really happening, um, it, it, that's always been hard. People have always fantasized and only been able to conceive of reality within their own bubble. I mean, that's, that's a very human thing to do. But certainly technology kind of counts on that and thrives on it. And so I don't even know if I could any longer call them miscommunications, I mean, or mistakes. They are like hardwired into the medium and it's almost like it's, it's a new instrument with a different pitch or something. You know, if you communicate mostly through texting, well, then it's, it's like you just, you have a different mouth, you know, you have different eyes um, that see and hear differently. You know, you can't expect the same thing. This is kind of a, a 180, but when you were a kid, do you remember the first creative act that you engaged in? Like it was yesterday. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I know I, I've I've gone at it pretty hard consistently, so there is a kind of feeling of like I can still get kind of stressed out thinking about oh rats, <laughs> this play that I um, did with my friend Monet when we were in first or second grade. And I remember mimeographing the programs for Oh Rats. I think I still have one. Um, and just being very stressed out about these two performances of it we were going to do. And in retrospect, thinking, especially now that I have a kid who's that age, I don't think Oh Rats was, I think it had the trappings of a usual play, like an audience and a program 
but I think we may have more or less just been playing <laughs> in front of an audience. Like, I'm not sure how scripted it was or how similar the two performances were to each other, but I think the rigor was there nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember what Oh Rats was about? Um, well, it was written in the program is the only reason. I remember um, there was a pet shop owner named Mr. Pinkley. Uh, there were a lot of characters circling this character, Jen, um, which I thought was a really cool, normal name. Um, and my friend Monet, who I'm still friends with, played all the other characters, and then I was Jen. Um, so that's all I know. And then something involving rats, clearly. <laughs> have, you always, have you always written uh, with you in the lead role? Um, well, I'm making a movie right now that I'm not in at all. Uh, and because I write fiction and I'm not in that, um, and all these m movies essentially start as just a fiction document, the me being in it part kind of comes later and has often felt like sort of an afterthought, you know? Um, so when you're writing, you don't, you don't think this is the Miranda July character? No, I, 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 in fact, me and you and everyone we know was the first movie where I had a character like me in it. Um, even like all the performances I did before that, I acted in them, but I was always playing, you know, like a old man or a little girl or a mother. Not that I was like a character actor, but I wasn't trying to be like an artist in the performance, you know? And this, this movie, I think I, in a way it was a, maybe a little bit out of nervousness, like, well, I'd actually never thought about acting. <laughs> like, can I act? Would, would I be convincing as an old man or a child or a mother? These other roles I'd played. Maybe I should play someone rather like myself in this debut thing that I'm hoping will get out there more because um, that'll be easy and I won't have to think too hard about that. Um, so it was almost like a just like a cute, simple, easier version of me, not really me, but like a placeholder for someone. And that was a real one-off thing. And I remember my best friend being like, whoa, this movie's so normal because it has like this artist girl in it. Like, you know, a real, that she thought of that as like a real crowd pleaser. Like I was really trying to like go for, <laughs> go mainstream um, by playing, you know, someone who was a fitting role for me. And I, that actually turned out to be true. I mean, that really set a course. People really thought of me as that character and less like an old man or a child, you know, like the other things I played that I related to in a way more. Um, and, I, and I sort of rejoiced then at writing fiction where there wasn't someone like me and then regretted in a way doing it again with my next movie. And then with this movie was like, oh, okay, finally, I'm, con I'm awake. I know what I'm doing. I don't have to do that again. There doesn't need to, I don't even need to be in the movie. <laughs> do you find it hard to balance acting in your films with directing? Well, in retrospect, yes, I didn't really know anything else. Um, so I didn't quite know how hard it was and until now I didn't have to do it this time. And I was like, well, first of all, the actors are so good. They're so good at their job and they're so focused on their job and nothing else. Um, and that's sort of what you want out of your stars, your leads. Um, and I also acted in a movie that I didn't direct a little while back, a, a movie by Josephine Decker called Madeline's Madeline. And 
that was such a joy. And acting in my movies had never been a joy. I mean, I've been sort of like just work, you know, a thing I had to do to sort of fill in the middle bingo piece, you know, like, okay, well, there's me, you know, that piece is done. Um, so that, that was kind of a revelation. And, and also I understood that it should be joyful, you know, like I, and I kind of understood the actor's role more. Like, oh, you are here to be a child and not be responsible and to feel your feelings and be free and make mistakes. And I got to do that finally. Um, and so I, at I was at least attempting to cultivate that this time for my actors, whereas I don't think I thought too much about it either way with my previous movies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A few years back, I was, a, I was a nanny for some kids. And I just remember... Working with them, it gave me such a rush of creative inspiration after I'd be done working with them because this childlike imagination that I feel like little kids have. Have you found that kind of inspiration from having a child of your own now? No, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I'd say inspiration I've gotten from having a child has more to do with sort of the heaviness of it. Like it's a very, it, it kind of, thrusts you into the marrow of life in terms of mortality, your life and death. You're trying to keep this thing alive. You would be devastated forever if it died. And each day you try and make sure it doesn't die and you don't die. <laughs> and, uh, and then in addition, you're now like a waitress and a cook um, and a cleaning person. So those things are not inspiring. Um, <laughs> so it's like this very heavy thing and then this really um, menial and for a woman kind of a, an awkward job if you've worked your whole life to identify yourself, you know, sort of outside of domesticity. And then there are these kind of sublime moments that are just as fleeting as the sublime moments in any other relationship, you know? It's not like a faucet that's on the whole childhood it's it's just like flashes of light where you're like you th you believe it's going to be that way forever and then it's just that flash of light you know and that's wonderful um and then and then you're kind of also in this big narrative that uh is going to play out in a relatively short amount of time like this child was going to grow up and become a person like within your lifetime so that's this big story and it's you get very curious, like, how will it end? You know, what, what, you know? And so that's a little bit, um, I guess, if you're thinking about narrative and about time, like I've always been really interested in time, it, it does kind of intensify that, yeah. You wrote The First Bad Man during your pregnancy, right? Right, yeah, or I started it, I thought of it before I got pregnant, then I wrote, yeah, the first draft while I was pregnant, and then I... Where did that novel come from? You know, it's funny going back to that, that thing of myself being in my work. I knew I wanted to write a novel. I had to like, you know, write something and then sell it, you know, write a, at least like 60 pages. You have to have an idea. And the idea I thought of, I was like, well, what's a big story, like a novel-like story? And I thought of the essentially the same story that my first play, The Lifers, was about, which was my correspondence with this man in prison that I had when I was a teenager. Um, that was a many-year <clears throat> relationship and, and very formative for me. And I thought, well, that seems, I can so imagine that being a book. And so I set out writing it. 
Um, then I actually made this movie, The Future, and that I was in. And as I was making that, I was like, aha, the, my least favorite parts of this movie are the parts that seem to be about me, you know, that are most kind of literal or seem autobiographical. And why would I write a, a whole book that is literally, you know, my story? Like, this is a chance to to totally get away from that. And I'd already sold it as this other idea. Um, so I thought, well, I, I can change course. Um, I just have to come up with another idea that's even better, <laughs> you know. And I did, I, um, this sometimes happens. It just comes in a flash. Um, I, I always want to underline for other writers, it comes in a flash after making a huge mistake that takes years um, out of your life. Because this, this is a real practice of mine. Like I'll often do false starts and whole drafts of other projects. And then the idea I want to do suddenly comes in 10 minutes. And that happened with the novel, just on a drive, kind of the whole arc of it and the characters. Um, and so, yeah, then I turned around and went to my editor at Scrivener and said, well, the bad news is not going to do that other thing. Hope you like this. And, um, and it turns out you're allowed to do that. People do it all the time. Yeah, I think of uh, this playwright, Susan Laurie Parks, that we talked to last year, and she has a play called Effing A that she wrote in its entirety and then erased the entire thing. And oh, wow. I know. And it, it ultimately never seems laborious. Like, to me, at the end, I always feel like I did some sort of labor over the last few years, and then at the very end, they said, okay, you've labored enough. We're going to hand you this finished work and you just are like, really, this movie? I get to say I made this? Well, I've done nothing. <laughs> That's always how I feel. And it's like all that labor was just a sort of thing you had to do to show you were worthy to be handed the thing. There's a, there really is this connecting theme that I notice in your work of finding connection with people across generations and across fields and disciplines and people from all walks of life trying to connect with each other. I'm reminded a little bit of the interview you did with Rihanna too, where you you ended up finding a really deep connection with the Uber driver on the way to the interview. Yeah, so I was all set to meet Rihanna and had this really long drive across LA to like Malibu proper. And uh, my Uber cab driver was this guy, Amaru Idrisa and I think it was just, you know, sometimes you don't want to talk at all to your driver, but I may have been the one who started because I was so nervous and out of my mind <laughs> with like, oh my God, at the end of this drive, I will be sitting down with Rihanna. And so I think I just blurted out like, I'm on my way to interview Rihanna. <laughs> and uh, and he was, he was super into it, although now I know knowing him like, it's also like he takes that in stride and sort of randomly ends up. He'd already met Rihanna, for example. <laughs> he had a selfie with her that he showed me on the drive. I was like super dubious, you know, and then he shows me the picture. I'm like, okay, um, how is she? You know, he's like, she's so nice. Um, uh, but he told me his whole life story, which starts in Niger and in West Africa. And he's, driving here and sending money back to there and really as many people do sort of living in two places and two 
very different identities and spanning reality that's like, I mean, so impoverished. Like, that's, I, I don't know, like really even the right words that aren't just newspaper words for like what I've come to know is all the casualties, all the things that can happen there. I mean, so we kept in touch. I interviewed Rihanna. He actually stayed, you know, with Uber, you don't usually have the same driver on the way back, but he had, he'd given me a question to ask her and he wanted to know the answer. And, uh, and he stuck around and I called him and he drove me back and we talked all the way back. And, and then we kept in touch. We texted now and then, and he went home, his mom died. He lost his place. Um, when he went home, his place where he lived and because I knew from that drive, he had described how sometimes he'd been homeless and sometimes lived in the cars that he'd leased to drive in and that that was actually pretty common for those black car drivers. Um, and so when he told me he lost his place, I was suddenly like, ah, oh, okay, he's, got, he's not going to say this to me, but I know enough now to know he's going to sleep in the car. And I said, you know, I, I have an office, <laughs> this office, uh, that I'm in nine to five, but if you want to be there five to nine, that's fine. There's a bed, you know, um, no one's using it. And so we did that um, for what ended up being seven months. And he always wanted me to tell his story, as we all do, kind of. You know, it's like that's sort of the ultimate, like, I will feel okay one day when my story is told. And part of his story that I was, was learning was that he didn't sleep he just barely slept at all. And that was this kind of leftover PTSD from all these years where he was illegal here. Now he's a citizen, but he, he had some, you know, times where the immigration authorities knocked on his door and he hit, you know, he knew they were after him and that to sleep at all felt very unsafe. And he was often living in like sheds and stuff that didn't feel secure. And that just had not gotten out of his body yet and still hasn't. And just a little while ago, I, I was commissioned to, to make a piece for the Victorian Albert Museum for a, a big show about kind of design of the future, art and, and technology essentially. Um, and I got really interested in, in curtains, in these smart curtains that are supposed to kind of reflect your habits. You can program them to open different times of day. You know, they're thought to be somewhat surveilling, you know, because of course that data, where does that go? Who could, who sh you know, nobody should really know. They can sort of present a kind of intimacy with your daily life that you maybe don't want to be sharing. But I thought that was, you know, maybe it'd be useful to point that out in some, use that oddly emotional quality of that data in some other way. And I was trying to, because the curtains would be in a museum in, in London, but I wanted the person here to be triggering them, somehow their actions be triggering them. I thought, well, the problem is the time difference. Like anyone here would be asleep when the museum is open. And then I thought, not Omaru, <laughs> he doesn't sleep. And, um, and so the piece that we made together with a very good technologist, Russell Quinn, when he wakes up, these beautiful blue velvet curtains open, when he opens Instagram, another pair of curtains opens, 
when he opens WhatsApp, another one opens when he opens Uber, another one opens. So they're op all day long in the museum. These, these four curtains, different colored curtains, are opening and shutting according to the live data that's coming to them. And he's on his phone all night long. And I know that's not wildly unusual. That's what people do when they're awake. Um, they're on their phones. I think I was interested in how, how is it different for someone whose home is dispersed? You know, he, the people he cares about are in another time zone. Niger is actually happened to be basically the same time zone as London. So everyone he loves is awake at night. That's like another reason why you might want to be awake and why you'd be what's apping like crazy. Um, and then he's also occasionally driving at night, making money for those people. Like, like we all want to be more present um, and not be on our phones and really like be, you know, connected to our loved ones. And, and for him, I, I think being present to his real reality, which is partly here and partly there, involves being on his phone. Like, I, I think the way the technology functions in his, like, deepest self or in his heart is uh, a little different when you don't have the privilege of everyone you care about being right there with you. Um, and, of course, we all know about that from, like, traveling. <laughs> um, but if your whole life is lived that way, your whole lifetime, um, you might judge those habits differently. It's really interesting the way the the thought process on this project came together so organically, but then you've arrived at this kind of rich theme and rich rich meditation on on migration and the way we use media. And I'm just curious, you know, do you always conceive of projects in that way, or do you think of an idea sometimes and then you apply a medium to it? Um, yeah, I don't. I don't usually think of an idea and then apply a medium. Um, I, I know the genre first, you know, um, because that's usually part of what's inspiring. I mean, that piece started out just by liking how curtains looked. I mean, it was so banal and, and in a way wanting to make a, something that involved technology that didn't look like a app, you know? Yeah, there are sometimes larger ideas that manifest, end up manifesting in many projects. Um, and I think that's just because you, you live for a while, you know, and, and stay interested in things for a while and they, they just end up spilling over into different mediums. And I can see that very much like my book of sh first book of short stories and my first movie have a kind of commingling of interests. You know, going back to that fateful interview with Rihanna, um, there's one exact question that you asked her that I thought would be a good one to end this interview on. Can you describe what it's like in your head? <laughs> oh no, what did she say? Was she able to do that? Um, uh, the first word that came into my mind was relentless. Um, I mean, it's just a, a pounding, relentless, like, narration of things to do. And I guess I, th I think of my mind as this tool, and I 
almost like a dog, like a really intense dog that's being like held back on a chain. And I like hold it back and then I find I have to point it really carefully at things because I know it's really going to attack. Um, and, and so then I, I release it on something and it, it doesn't have a mind of its own, this, this mind. <laughs> um, so it doesn't know when to stop. It doesn't have a sense of anything else but the thing that it's attacking. It's just full on and I have to then pull it back and really, really consciously calm it down when I want to calm it down. Um, like it, it takes all sorts of training and skills. Um, and it doesn't do, it's not a, it's not a chill dog, not a good dog for children. Um, funny that I've come up with this metaphor since I actually have a dog phobia. I'm like terrified of dogs. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess that's, that's the best I can do to describe how it is in my head. But and that, that leaves out a level of funness. Um, I wouldn't say it's fun, but it's kind of exciting to have like a dog that can kill. <laughs> thank you for bringing us into your home. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. Artist Patti Smith is often cited as an influence for the punk ethos of Riot Girl. Here she is in an outtake from the American Masters Digital Archive. There's a part of me that believes it's very important that artists monitor themselves and develop a conscience in terms of what they give the people. I think the masses don't need, don't want, and are not going to be informed nor helped by all of art. There's just certain things that are not for everyone. I don't think what we need in America is a, is a race of artists. I believe that artists have to maintain their strength outside of society and permeate it and help to elevate it or spiritually inspire society. But um, society must move on its own. The American Masters podcast was created by Michael Cantor and is produced by Joe Skinner. And co-produced by Josh Hamilton, with sound engineering by Josh Broom, John Berman, and Gerard Collins. For American Masters, we thank series producer Julie Sachs, supervising producer Junko Sunishima, and production coordinator Krista Campbell. Our theme music is by Infinity Shred. The 1997 interview with Patti Smith is an outtake from American Masters' Lou Reed, Rock and Roll Heart, directed by Timothy Greenfield Sanders. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe. And please give us a rating or review. See you in a couple weeks.